Welcome to the Gray Stage Podcast. My name is Greg Fernandez Jr. I'm one of many researchers looking into this case. I began looking into this case trying to prove David Crowley guilty. Five years later, I still don't have any proof. We have a lot of speculation, but we have a lot of speculation about many different theories, including what the investigators told us. We're going to go over my book thoroughly looking at all of the different points made in that book and where we go from there we'll see this is the monthly podcast and i want to thank everybody for joining us here god bless you all let's get to it first responders at 104 p.m on january 17 2015 apple valley police sergeant greg dahlstrom arrived at the crime scene there he saw colin Procknow standing in the ray tuppy's driveway Mr. Procknow approached the officer stating there were bodies in the living room of the Crowley home. Sergeant Dahlstrom then approached the front window and looked inside the residence. I noticed several obviously dead bodies lying on the floor near the front picture window, Sergeant Dahlstrom wrote in his supplemental report. I noticed a black handgun on the floor as well. Lastly, I noticed a medium-sized dog barking and running among the bodies. I advised dispatch of my findings, Sergeant Dahlstrom continued, and requested the channel be restricted to emergency traffic. The sergeant then informed Captain John Bermell of the situation. Officer Tara Becker was the second responder to arrive at the crime scene. Sergeant Dahlstrom advised me that there were in fact three deceased parties that could be seen from the large picture window at the front of the residence. Officer Becker did not report seeing the bodies in any of her supplemental reports we received. Officer John Broden arrived third. With all three officers standing on the west side of the house, they could smell the odor of decaying bodies. Officer Broden was the first officer to check the back of the house. I was instructed to check the rear of the residence for any signs of forced entry, Broden documented. The backyard is fenced in with a chain-link fence and the gates were closed but not locked. Officer Broden entered the backyard and saw fresh animal tracks in the snow. Signs of forced entry were not found on any backyard windows, but there was an open door. The rear sliding patio door was found open slightly one-fourth of an inch, wrote Broden. I opened the door and found that it was not locked or secured with a bar lock. Paleo continued to bark as Broden opened the rear slider. When I opened the patio door, there was an overpowering odor of decaying flesh. One light was on in the dining room, Broton continued. The Christmas tree lights and other strings of Christmas lights were still on. After walking around the back of the house, Officer Broton looked through the front window and saw three bodies on the living room floor. They were all badly decomposed, Broton wrote in his report. One adult body was lying on its back with a black semi-auto pistol nearby. The second adult body appeared to be laying on its stomach and or side. Between two adult bodies was the body of a small child. Officer Adam Keeler arrived fourth and helped secure the scene until Paleo was removed from the house. Once Community Service Officer Brian Booth arrived, Officer Keeler opened the rear sliding door and the officers attempted to lure Paleo outside with dog treats. Officer Keeler reported it took five minutes for Paleo to come outside. Dog was scared upon arrival, wrote CSO Brian Booth, but appeared to be friendly. I was able to catch the dog with a choke pole and get it into the bed of my truck where it stayed until roughly 1900 hours. CSO Booth then took Paleo to Palomino Pet Hospital. 
and advised the kennel to only feed and water the dog but not to do anything else with it since it was part of an investigation. Next, Sergeant Dahlstrom and Keeler entered the house through the rear slider. Prior to entering the residence, wrote Sergeant Keeler, I announced officers' presence. There was no response. The two officers cleared the garage first, then the main level, ending with the basement. I noted the writing on the living room wall, wrote Keeler, which appeared to say Allahu Akbar. It appeared to be written in blood with fingerprints. Sergeant Dahlstrom also noticed blood writing on the living room wall. I noticed letters on the wall that appeared to be written in blood. Dahlstrom also reported seeing several bloody footprints on the floor in the area between the kitchen and living room. Below the wall on the living room floor lay three heavily decomposed bodies, two adults and one child. At this time, Broughton reported, the bodies are presumed to be that of the homeowners David Timothy Crowley, born 7785, and Kamel Rasul Crowley, born 112086, and their daughter Rania Crowley. With all three levels cleared, officers left the house and waited for detectives to arrive. The Crowley's mailbox was full. After Officer Becker photographed the mailbox, she opened it and removed two pieces of mail, one belonging to David and the other to Kamel. The postmaster was arriving at this time, wrote Becker, and handed me today's mail, which was placed inside the mailbox. An interesting note found in the BCA notes stated, Mail in Mailbox, December 29th, slash front packages, 11015. Alright, so that was reading from pages 13 to pages 15 of The Gray Stage by myself, Greg Fernandez, looking at the first responders. One, two, three, four, five first responders is what we're looking at here. All before the detectives arrive and all before the BCA shows up. And obviously, way before the medical examiner shows up as well. What you'll see here is some of the most important information about what happened. To the crowds. And with that, we're going to take you right into our call with Dan Hennen, Sophia, Stephanie, and of course, our good friend Anne. We'll be covering the chapter called First Responders in tonight's show. This is basically pages 13, 14, and 15 of the book, A Gray Stage. I think what is really important here is the first responders should all have the same story. They should all look at the same bodies and report them the exact same way. So that's what I was looking for here. People can judge that for themselves, whether all of these officers who entered that house or who showed up to the scene and looked through the front window and saw these bodies, did they all see the exact same thing? Sergeant Greg Dahlstrom was there 1.04 p.m. He arrived and he was the very first person. Um, he looked in, approached the front window, and looked inside so he was the very first uh, responder on site and he and he goes on to say that quote I noticed several obviously dead bodies lying on the floor near the front picture window uh, that's what he wrote in his supplemental report and quote I noticed a black handgun on the floor as well lastly I noticed a medium-sized dog barking and running among the bodies in my opinion, I think Paleo was probably happy to see somebody alive and looking in the window. Maybe that a protective instinct also kicked up in him. I was thinking it was more of a, like, this is my house, what are you doing looking in the window? 
type of thing from paleo. That's at least what I, the feeling I got from reading all the reports when they talk about how frantic he is. But I, I've kind of changed my view on that a little bit. I'm not so 100% on that because of the smudge marks on the window. The window was surprisingly clean for a frantic dog being near it. I still don't think he attacked that window the way that certain people have said it. Yeah, these officers don't say anything like that. Correct. Very different. And Paleo knew them. Paleo had at least seen Colin Procknow and Judy Procknow at some point, I'm guessing. So Sergeant Dahlstrom then basically lets Captain John Burmell know about the situation. And then Officer Tara Becker is the second to show up at this crime scene. And what was very curious to me is that it doesn't sound like, if you read Officer Tara Becker's documents, it doesn't sound like she ha she sees these bodies, period. Maybe I'm reading more into it than I should, but... Should she have looked? She had to, to have looked. To confirm she? what she was told? Like, shouldn't she have had to look? And I would think so. I don't know why she wouldn't, but if she did, shouldn't it be here? Shouldn't it be in these documents? Yeah, in her report, I saw, like, the other guys put in. Right. Whereas with hers, it's so-and-so advised me. And she, do she does see them later because she's taking photos. Uh, she's either, either taking photos or taking video, but she's in there later on, so there's, I mean, you would think that at that point, there should be some documentation from her. And she is, I don't believe she's that uh, tall woman, I think she's very short in stature, so she wouldn't have been able to see through that window anyway from the outside. Be, even being on her tiptoes, she wouldn't have been able to see in, so... so. That would make sense. I agree that she wouldn't have seen by first responding, you know, officer until she actually went around through the back and went into the residence. I think well, I, th I agree with Stephanie. Yeah, I think the dog was just frantic, running around. Uh, may have been excited to, you know, to see, you know, li living human beings as well, um, or just frantic, excited, or all of the above. I think the dog was just running around, didn't know what to think. I don't know if the first couple of squad cars came on there with their lights and sirens on and and everything and may have been very startling. Or maybe they just uh, showed up with no lights, uh, no you know, sirens. You know, we, we don't know. The dogs above us, every time that sirens go by our apartments, they freak out. And I don't know how paleo was, but if they came in with sirens on, it's very possible that that could have set them off too. Now, I know that like ambulances or police that go by our apartments, when they turn into a residential area, they leave their lights on, but their sirens are turned off. But I'm, we're next to a really busy boulevard, so when they're on that, they leave them on, but as soon as they turn down the residential road, they turn the, the sirens off, but the lights are still on. So I don't know what the procedure is in Minnesota or Apple Valley. I mean, you you would think, okay, if it's just for a welfare check, maybe not, which is what Colin, mm -hmm. you know, tells him. That's what he wants after seeing the bodies. Just 
Can somebody come and do a welfare check? But listening to what Judy said, you can, you know, it's like there's a murder or a suicide and the dog is eating bodies and there's presence out there. At this point, they don't know that that there isn't a killer in that house based Mm -hmm. on her call. It's a big difference than just coming over and doing a welfare check. But the officers, they don't act like there's some impending danger or anything like that. It's more about looking, seeing those dead bodies. And obviously they're going to clear this house at some point, but they have to get that dog out first. So at this point, do we already think that they're not worried about finding anybody in, in the house? who might have killed these people, and they're not worried that there's presence out on the front doorsteps. That could be bombs or something. They really don't know anything at this point. Why would they think they were bombs? Well, because... Well, they don't know. That's the thing. They don't know what they're walking into. They have they have no idea if, if they're about to walk into a house that's going to be, you know, blown up any second. They don't know. But given Judy's phone call, she was who they first talked to. And from her phone call, it doesn't sound like there's kind of any imminent danger. And then, you know, you get to Colin's part, and it's more or less like, okay, well, there's dead people in there, but there's really no threat anywhere else. Correct me if if I'm wrong, but I don't remember reading anything outside of the gossip from the friends that there was any suspicion of bombs. And they don't mention it in the reports, do they? No. Okay. I think it was only Mason Hendricks and Sean White that mentioned that? Correct. Now, um, Greg, if I could just jump in here. Um, when the first officer came, Dahlstrom, uh, he did see the neighbor, you know, uh, Colin Procknow, standing in the driveway of the other neighbor, um, chatting, and then he came up and Told her, told him that you know the bodies are in the front in the picture window. So I think the imminent danger may have been relieved at that point when they saw the two neighbors just chatting calmly in the driveway and saying, "Yeah, they're inside. The bodies are inside." So maybe that led them to assume that there was no <clears throat> imminent danger. Perhaps I don't know. It's just weird. Like I, I guess everybody reacts to things different, so it's not really my place to judge how they responded. But when you when Judy's telling Lorraine Tupi, Lorraine, mm-hmm. yep, to you know, don't go, don't go look in there, don't do it, don't look in there. That seems like you know she's she's very bothered by that, you know, as anybody would be. But if Colin and her just kind of standing there chit chatting, when the cops get there, it it kind of makes me wonder if there's not more to the neighbors calling and saying what they said, like if maybe there wasn't some sort of checklist, if you will, given to them to say what they said to the officers. Just going through the the reports, the things that are put in there, like the things that the police say that the neighbors said, just weird little things that don't, they don't seem like they would be important to this case. There, there's no real reason why it should be there. We, we talked about it a little bit in the, the last conference call where um, Dan had pointed out it seems like it was just like put in there to kind of 
push an agenda. That idea is seeming more and more realistic to me at least. And, and I think too to piggyback mm -hmm. on what Jan was saying, Judy did talk to the police at some point. Um, and she said comments that David was acting strange in the last few months. He had a mohawk. He was wearing military type clothing. So the police might have been given at some point the impression that there was an intruder and it was him. And it's interesting that Judy is also saying these things because she also told police that she had limited contact with the Crowleys. So how would she know if David's behavior was strange or not? She doesn't even know the family that well. I mean, this is a woman who said that her grandkids used she used to allow the grandchildren to go over and play at David's house and then she turns around and the next comment will say, I really didn't know David that well. It's like, which is it? Do you let your grandchildren play with strangers inside of that stranger's house? Well, she had also said that she's not the one who decided the kids couldn't play over there anymore. It was her daughter because her daughter is the one who got the weird vibe from him. It wasn't even her. So then you've got the fact that Colin is the one who supposedly saw the gun. Judy didn't actually see the gun. It's really hard going through and separating what she actually saw versus hearsay from her daughter or her husband or another neighbor or something like that. Well, she's even gone on the record saying that she was shown the new furniture by David. I didn't see that. Huh? Yeah, she put that in a comment. I have that, actually. And why would, if she barely knew him, why would he invite her inside to see the furniture? All right, so third to show up on the scene is Officer John Broden. While all three officers were standing on the west side of the house, they could smell the odor of decaying bodies. Now, um, Broden is also, he's the first person to check the back of the house. So uh, you have three officers there. They've already and looked. And he's the first one. Yeah, one has already looked through the front window. Um, you have three neighbors that are hanging hanging out. And um, so Broton is told, go check the back of the house. Is that another common thing, too? You have one officer in front, one officer in the back. Do you want two officers going through the through the back? Uh, to me, it just kind of seems like they're not that concerned about another person in that house, and they're not that concerned about this being a triple homicide. So when Broton goes to the, to the back, he says, I was instructed to check the rear of the residence for any signs of forced entry. That's what they're looking for here. Uh, the backyard is fenced in with a chain link fence, and the gates were closed but not locked. I thought that was another interesting thing too. I don't, I don't know. Over over here, we don't really lock our side gates. I don't know what people in Minnesota do, or in Texas, or, <laughs> or wherever you, wherever the rest of you are. <laughs> he had a small child and a dog, though. I would think that that would be, like, the back door not being secured, even if it was broken. That not being secured, plus the, the gate not being locked, you wouldn't have need to force your way into the property. You've already got a clear path. 
the back gate's unlocked, the back door's broken, why would you need to break your way in? Here's what I think here. You get these, uh, the calls come in from dispatch, 911 dispatch. And so the people responding are just typical patrol, you know, traffic patrol officers. And they're, they're showing up to a scene with bodies inside and a dog running around. So I think they're mainly waiting for instruction as far as what to do and, you know, what, what, what's their role there. So they're chatting and in the house faces south and the back of the house faces north. And so I think when they get to Broughton showing up there, the officers were at that time wandering over to the side, which is the west, and that's where they can first get the glimpse of the smell. Uh, the front door and the, you know, the side doors and windows were closed. Only in the back was the door open just a little bit, that slider. So I think when they walked to the west and were about to go into that gate is when they caught the first whiff of it, which would make sense. They're getting closer to where the door is open. And uh, Minnesota, not common to lock. You, you have a chain link fence like that there. There's just a clasp that closes it. There's not a lock. I don't know of any neighbors that have locks on it. And that fence, uh, as I stood there before uh, on the scene, was I think it's a four or three and a half foot high fence, very short. It's like just for dogs, pets, and little kids. Uh, any adult can just you know, basically jump over that uh, fence or, or leap right over it. So it's very small, but... Um, so that would make sense. Now, Broden is, is, goes out of his way here to mention all these steps. And I think this is all just protocol. Uh, he's throwing in there, you know, uh, we're looking for forced entry. Um, we're seeing if things are locked and things are not locked. Those are the kind of rhetoric that I think that's how cops speak when they enter a scene like that They're, or, or what they're instructed you know, to say. So he's making sure that there was no forced entry and there wasn't. And so that's, I think, that, that's what we're hearing a lot from his statement. The door was left on a quarter of an inch opened, opened slightly, you know, and they found it that it was not locked or secured with a bar lock. So he goes out of his way to, you know, clearly explain how it was seen. It makes sense. I'm just wondering if they had found signs that somebody had forced their way into that house, would that change what they did from that point on? I don't know. I'm not... I'm not Sure, I think it's they're, they're trained in a certain way. Like when we when the crime scene photographers came in, all the time they spent right off the bat was you know taking 18 photos of the door, you know because that's their training is to show was any anything on the door the jam was it jammed was it locked was it pried open how was the door open so like Broughton here enters the first thing he's on his mind is is, the, is there any kind of forced entry now I think with the neighbors standing around. That, I think, lessened their alert for someone in the house and the dog barking and the first call came in saying that you know, the bodies had been here for a while, but I don't think there was any urgency that there was a threat on the scene. But they still have to go through the process of clearing the house, which is coming up on the next, next pages. Well, they did a good job starting out with protocol, so what happened? Because protocol is not touching things and moving things. When you're just doing your initial picture taking, you're not supposed to be moving anything. You're, you're documenting what is there before anything's moved. So they started out strong. And uh, Officer Broughton has been there a while. He's since retired. Uh, so he was a senior level. He was a veteran. He knew what was going on. You can tell by his comments and his statements and his reports that things were very well detailed. 
mean, he said, I opened the door and there was, he said, quote, an overpowering odor of decaying flesh. Now, that would make sense for bodies being there. Um, that is obviously what the, what the smell would be. And he goes on to say that there's a light on in the dining room. Christmas tree lights and other strings were still on. And um, he walked around the back of the house and then looked through the front window and saw three bodies in the living room floor. All were badly decomposed. One adult was lying on his back with a black semi-auto pistol nearby. Second adult body appeared to be laying on its stomach and or side. And between the two adult bodies was a body of a small child. So Broden comes in and does his job, I think, describes everything, checks, goes around the house. He does everything, like Stephanie said, you know, the, the protocol was there at, at the, the first folks that showed up. And okay, last thing on, on Broton here was this, this overpowering odor of decaying flesh. Does that help us give any indication of how long the bodies were there? Does this help show that the bodies were yeah. there for three weeks? So I got family and friends that are in law enforcement. The first few days up to a week is when it's going to be the most horrendous. After that, the smell is still bad, but it backs off a little bit. The most overpowering is that first week, probably the first maybe you know days three through seven. And so when he says overpowering, that leads me to believe it's, it's in that seven to ten day window that the bodies were sitting there. Uh, if it was three weeks, it would still stink, but I don't think you see the word overpowering because by that time the stench, the stench is for the most part gone away. So that's the only other thing I can say on, on that. He does say the word overpowering, and that's the same adjective I get when talking with family and friends in law enforcement uh, when they talk about that. Uh, yes, it's going to smell later on as well, but if it's overpowering, it's, it's in its first round of the whole rigor mortis. And so that's where I lean into that uh, earlier stage, and I don't buy the three-week stage because of Broton's comment. And that's why I wanted to interview him. I talked to him on the phone after he resigned and retired. And I said, well, if I'd like to meet and go over the case with you, and I can meet, you know, because I'm only 30, 30 minutes away. And he said, well, let me, let me run it past some people and I'll let you know, but I'm open to, you know, have a cup of coffee. And then he called back and says, uh, I, I talked to, you know, Gummers and I didn't really have anything to, to do with the case, so I don't think we should meet. And I, so my, my answer is, these pages, Greg, here that you wrote, show that he was one of the very first people on the scene, saw the dog, saw the door ajar, smelled the decay. He had a, he would be a very good interview, I think. But someone did not I, want him speaking to me, even though he was no longer with the force, which had nothing to do with anything. He didn't have to ask permission at that point. Go ahead, Stephanie. I was just going to say, I completely agree with you there. That seems very odd that he would say that he didn't have much to do with it because from just reading this, not, not even considering the, the whole um, police report, it sounds like he was one of the you know, important interviews to get. So why would somebody have told him to decline it, the interview? Well, that's, that's the point. Because by him saying that he didn't have much to do with that, that's an outright lie because clearly he was one of the first few people there. So, And I, I think the way he phrased it on the phone call was he didn't have that much to do and he wasn't playing a big important role in the detective and the investigation that went on months and you know, up to a year later. 
And I said, I wasn't looking for that. I was looking for a first response. I wanted to get some your ideas from actually being the first, you know, third person there on the scene. That that very first initial shock and, and the sound, sounds and the sights that you saw and you witnessed, I think would have been very helpful for a 10-minute interview. That's all. I wasn't talking about the, the detective in the investigation case, but he says I didn't. I didn't have much to do with the case, so I shouldn't interview. I shouldn't be speaking with you or something to that effect. It's just pretty odd. But then again, his son is now in the force at Apple Valley. Oh. So there's still a connection out altogether. His son is on that. He's one of the uh, patrol officers, I believe, in Apple Valley. Was his son a part of the force when this happened? Not that I know he, of. I don't believe so. He may have been a junior officer or something to that effect, but he wasn't a sworn officer at the time, I don't believe. He was a part of but the case, the Josephson case, but I don't think he was a part of this case. John Broughton's son was mm -hmm. part of the other case. The other one, looked at. yeah. Okay. Oh, yes, Murder yes. suicide. Interesting. That happened, what, how long after? November 3rd, 2016. So we'll move on to Officer Adam Keeler. And he showed up fourth, and he helped secure the scene until the dog was removed from the house. What do we know about community service officer, CSO, Brian Booth? Because he's the one who was called to help take the dog out of the house. So I guess community service officer, Brian Booth, had some experience with dogs at this point. There was a reason why he was called to help take this dog out of this house. I just always assumed that he was like a dog catcher or worked for the pound. That's kind of what I thought, too. <laughs> Maybe I'm reading way too much into it. Like, I, I never really thought much about it. Like, he came and, and got the dog, so I thought, oh, okay, so he knows about dogs. And then but just the further is. along, you, you just kind of forget that he was the one who came. And... He just throws paleo in the back of the truck and leaves them there for hours. That's a good topic, Sophia, because the phrasing here had some questions early on in the case in the justice page uh, because it says that he got there, got the dog out, and put him into the bed of my truck where he stayed until roughly 1,900 hours. Now, 1,900 hours at 7 p.m., and that day I think it was 17 degrees outside on a January day in Minnesota in winter. So we assumed it was a pickup truck with an open bed. Um, later they said, no, the only squat cars that were there were SUVs and like a Ford Explorer type of a thing, and that's where the dog was. And I said, here in Minnesota, you don't call that the bed unless it's a pickup, a pickup truck. So why would he explain it as the CSO officer saying, I took paleo and put him in the, the bed of my truck? And really he just meant essentially the back seat or the back the, the way back area of the of an SUV just had him there. So the car was on, the car was running, so the car was warm, and so I put to put to bed any stress there was from members of the page thinking why was Paleo, you know, standing outside in the shivering cold in a pickup truck. So they said they had the car running, so which prompted the next question. We said he had the car running till 7 p.m. after getting there at one. Straight <laughs> hours. I think this was Judy Prochnow who was giving all the background on this by saying, no, there was no pickup for the truck. And I said, but well, why was the truck running for six straight hours? It ran out of gas. 
potentially. Mm -hmm. She said, well, maybe... Well, I mean, maybe somebody off. went and made a run and brought a gas can or something. But, but you're right. The paperwork shows that until $1,900, that dog was there. They didn't take the dog to the pound or anything. Basically, he was just quarantined with no food. That They may have given him some... Oh, I don't even think they can get him any treats at that point. I think they had a bucket of a bowl of water or something. They still didn't know what was in his system, so I don't think they were allowed to give him any food. Yeah, they had treats That's to get him dog. out. So they had some treats, but I don't think they were allowed to give him any food. Then they took him to the Palomino Pet Hospital and advised the kennel to only feed, feed and water the dog, but not to do anything else because it's part of an investigation. So that was Brian Booth and... Um, and Officer Adam Keeler. But that was very strange. You know, some of the words that were used, the length of time that was mentioned. See, when I think of them wording bed of truck, I think of like an F-150 with one of those hard shells on the back of it. And Oh, yes, yes. I, I was thinking that too. Yep. Uh, whether or not it was open, it could have had a topper on it or something. But we're thinking of kind of a pickup truck here in Minnesota is what mm -hmm. we think of an F-150 with or without a topper, but still with the topper on, 17 degrees is not insulated. And with no exactly. topper on, 17 degrees is you know, exposed. So either way, that doesn't make sense. And then I think that was at the time that Judy said that they were like all Ford Explorer type of uh, SUV patrol cars that the dog was in. And I said, I still wouldn't say that I put the dog in the bed of my truck if it's an mm -hmm. SUV. So I said, the terminology seems... Uh, but regardless, if they were there at one o'clock, seventeen hundred out, seven o'clock, you know, that's six hours that the dog was sitting there doing nothing, and for all they know, he hadn't eaten you know, for three weeks. I guess they had already seen what the living room was through the front window, through the back window. Why clear the garage first? Was it right room? there next to? Because you come in through the back, and there's that fireplace the kitchen, the garage is right there by, in that same area? Right. Yeah, the door leads right into the garage from that area. So if, if protocol would be to you know, sweep the house going from right to left or whenever you come in, um, that would have made sense. And they both went together, so they cleared the garage first. Um, I don't know if that's strange, Greg, or not. I, don't, I, I didn't read too much into that. They saw the writing on the wall in blood, and then... Dahlstrom, who's also in there at this time, noticed blood writing on the wall and several bloody footprints on the floor. And then he goes on to say that the uh, living room floor laid three heavily, heavily decomposed bodies, two adults and one child. I think the word heavily is left up for debate. The Apple Valley homicide, they get, they get one average of one homicide a year in Apple Valley, Minnesota. Very rarely would any of these officers even see a decaying body at all. So I think what they saw was it was they were decaying, uh, but you know David and Kamel were bloated. The bodies were bloated at this time, um, so they they were in I think that first round of decay or rigor, but not maybe heavily decomposed. Um, that that's the only thing I have to say about about that. It wasn't like they were there for you know months or something, but uh, he did say heavily. Now, Broden goes on to say that the body's presumed to be that of the homeowners and the daughter. All three levels of the house was then cleared, and officers left the house and waited for detectives to arrive. So the three went in, cleared, and then there was no threat. They began then to wait until the detectives 
arrived, which is also protocol, I'm assuming. Do we have the recording of them clearing the house? Yeah, Maybe the that's... audio looks like it, you know, it was definitely cut, so it was definitely cut for certain. I'm not sure why that audio was cut, but you can clearly see. Maybe just because there's nothing happening during that time. Uh, that audio recording is very important because you can hear how they sound. You can hear mm -hmm. their dog. That's probably one of the best ones, one of the best reasons. Um, is to hear what does what what does their dog sound like during that call? I need to listen to that again. I was posting the group very early on. So somebody had that audio. I just want to thank them, whoever you are. Thank you for posting that into the group because I thought that that was a big big help. The way this says they found or they saw several bloody footprints on the floor in the area between the kitchen and the living room. The picture I get in my head is you can clearly see a lot of bloody footprints in that area. So when you look at the pictures, you wonder where they're talking about because the pictures don't, that's not what I would say is several bloody footprints. I mean, it's a few, but it's just severely lacking for what you picture in your head versus what the picture shows. Well, I mean, there's several people that have gone on the record saying that David walked around the uh, crime scene for several days and was That's staging right. it, and <laughs> it's crazy. You know, there's possibly two in one handprint. Yeah, there was another rumor, too, remember, about how um, that they had proved that those were David's footprints. And we know that that's yeah. not true at all. Correct. And I, I don't, you know, I don't think that the people who told us that, I don't think that they really looked at it. I think they were, somebody told them that. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't think that a lot, of, a lot of these people, a lot of the family and friends, from what I've gathered, they have not looked at a lot of these documents. I do not believe that they have looked at these documents. And if I'm wrong, then I have no problem being wrong. Only, only they know what they have looked at and what they haven't. But based on the way, based on the on the conversations that I've had with family, friends, that they have, I do not believe that they have read a lot of these documents. Well, how could they make a documentary, or a supposed documentary, of those case? Yeah. But not read the documents. Yeah, they didn't want to read them. They didn't want to look at them. Well, I mean, that's just like the private detective. Yeah, he, he had it all. He looked at it. And it's, just, it's like he just skimmed over it. They weren't looking for anything that might stand out. It's all just speculative, and it's all based on feelings of them wanting David to be guilty, not on giving him the benefit of the doubt that we are innocent we are supposed to be un until proven guilty. I would just say that the raw audio that you guys mentioned is on YouTube, and if anybody's interested, you can look it up and listen to your for yourself. Also, if anybody's just catching on to the case, like Greg had mentioned, make sure you read the documents Greg has posted. Look through the crime scene photos and see for yourself so you can be better informed about this case. And just to let everybody listening to this podcast, 
all the files uh, pertaining to this case are located within um, the Justice for Crowley or David Crowley and Family group, and it's all located at the top of the group. Uh, they've been added by different members, Greg, Dan, myself, everything from that we've received from Apple Valley and the BCA is all up there. Um, we still got one more paragraph here to cover. So the Crowley mailbox was full. After Officer Becker photographed the mailbox, she opened it and removed two pieces of mail, one belonging to David and the other to Camille. The postmaster was arriving at this time. So this kind of gave us an idea of when the mail was being dropped off every day. Based on this, kind of assuming around 2 p.m., maybe 3 p.m. Another interesting thing is that the postman handed her David Crowley's mail. Where the mailboxes are, because it, this isn't like David Crowley's mailbox is at his house. It's actually towards the sidewalk with three, two other mailboxes, too. And what's in those mailboxes is also another thing here, but I think I think that's covered later on, so I won't get too much into that. But as a mailman, as a postal service or a postmaster, as it's written here, aren't they supposed to put the mail into the mailbox, not hand it to somebody? My mail people won't even hand it to my kids. Like, if, if I ask them for it, they'll walk up to my door and still put it in my little slot. When we lived in another town where we had a mailbox, like kind of connected with the other neighbors, they still wouldn't hand it to any of my kids. They would go and put it in the box. So I'm wondering why this postmaster handed it to her officer, Becker. Maybe that's why, because... She was, she's an officer? She's an officer. I've walked up to our mailman plenty of times and asked them before he's put the, started putting mail in the mailboxes and asked for mail for 2201, and he hands it right on over. Mm -hmm. But he drops packages off at our home all the time, so... Well, I would think if Tara Becker, if she asked for it, I think he would give it to her, um, but maybe he just felt like, okay, well, she needs to have this, because she was going through David Crowley's mail right at that time, at, at the same time, so. It was well, she talks way. about two pieces of mail, but the mailbox is about two-thirds filled. I'm looking right. at the photo right now. Right, and it, and we don't know if that photo was taken after, because after she does all this, she puts everything back in there. I do believe it's put back into the mailbox, if I remember correctly, and then it's filmed, or then it's photographed. This is from BCA 488, page 100. This is a note found in the BCA notes of states... There's mail in mailbox, and the dates are from December 29th, front packages, 1-10-15. The 1-10-15 date is something that still baffles me. I don't know what that means. So um, if anybody wants, wants to look that up, you can look that up in the BCA 488 PDF. 
on page 100. Okay. Joe Cooksley writes this. So, quote, mail in mailbox December 29th slash front packages 110.15. So the 110.15 is what really interests me here because that is the first day that the packages are seen. So maybe that's what they mean by the front packages 110.15. It's just not really clear. Well, the great thing about this book is it's, like Dan said in the foreword, that that was amazingly well, the way he put that. It's not to tell you who committed this crime. It's not to tell you why you should believe the way we do. It's to give you enough information for you to go and find your own decision. It's a tool. It's like a reference guidebook, if you will, of the basic facts that you need to know of what happened so that then you can go and track it down and decide what you think happened. Any final words here from anyone? I, I wanted to say um, thank you again to Dan, even with all the uh, drama that came from it. Thank you for putting up the money and, and, and hiring the private investigator. I think that was a really important step. He may not have done a great job, but the the fact that you stepped up and did that, I I really respect you as a person just for that fact. You know, not not even considering all the work you guys have all put into this, just that alone. You you guys are all some pretty amazing people, and it it really should be noted that you know without any any horse in the race, we're all aside from our busy lives, trying to find justice for this family. Since 2015, I'll tell you, I've lost a lot of respect for a lot of people that I thought were real truth seekers. I really thought that these people were looking for truth. And now, now I don't. You know, Now I think it is all about money, and it, it's all about fame, and it's all about them. It's not about truth. Because this case is so toxic, there is no winner in this case. You know, nobody wins here. Uh, all that we can do is try to find justice and try to try to bring justice to this case. And that requires a certain amount of a sacrifice. And for people that are public, for people that are known, for people that have following, for people that want to get likes, people that want to people have share their data and everything, want them to treat them special, wipe their feet and kiss their ass. Those people are, you know, look at, at this case and don't want to touch it. So how real could those people be? You know, and it's, it's just like every day we hear, not every day, but uh, very often I hear, well, we should get this person to look into this case. And then we get a person to look into this case and they don't, they don't want to look into it. They don't want to touch it. You know, but yet I'm supposed to follow them. I'm supposed to think that they're this great person who is good at cracking these cases and looking at these unsolved cases and everything. They're so great at that. We give them a slam dunk case and they won't touch it. Something wrong with that. Very much so. If it makes you feel any better, his TV show fell through. 
Yeah, that does make me feel better. I just think, given all the things that he's got in the works, like as far as his own personal career, I really think he did not want to disagree with the police officers on this case because if he had openly come out and said, well, yeah, you definitely got something here, Dan, then all those police officers, all the, the rapport that he's built up over all these years with all these people would be gone. Just from him saying, I believe these police officers didn't do the best they could have. You know, that could be a reason why he wouldn't have said that we're on the right track or anything to that effect. That that could be a very good reason why he basically just told us that we're all nuts for looking into it. And I agree with that. I mean, he doesn't want to burn those bridges with any police that he might have to work with or any deals that he has in the works. Right, but at the same time, you're kind of pissed at him, or I am yeah. at least, because he yeah. was paid to do a job, and he didn't do it. Heck, I could have done that. Much My daughter better. could have done a better job than he did <laughs> for a whole lot less money. Like, I, I, I just I feel you a so great bad. Field, Dan. <laughs> like, he, he could have, that, Kenneth Maines could have been... Yeah, he would have had some negative blowback, but anybody, anybody who puts their name to a case where other people say something different is going to have negative blowback. David himself said that you're going to have that. He was experiencing the negative blowback on, on the Grey State movie. You know, there was all those people telling him that, you know, oh, you're not actually going to do this, are you, Right. That's going to happen no matter what, because there's always going to be somebody who doesn't agree with what everybody else says. But in order to get this properly looked into, there has to be somebody who's willing to say, fuck it, I don't care if I lose my job. I don't care if all these officers are mad at me. If they're really going to be mad at me for, for telling the truth, well, then I don't need all them. Because, like Greg, Greg just said, it's a slam dunk case. But like, it's almost like people are afraid to put their name to it because of all the other crap that's attached to it. But these were people. These were human beings. If we're going to say that, why even have police look into murder cases? Why even have a justice system? If we don't believe that every single person on this planet matters, why do we even have laws? It, it's stupid. Every single person matters. No matter if you knew them or not, they were a human being. The, the laws are there to protect us. And if the police are not going to look into a case and investigate it to their best ability, there's something seriously wrong. You know, Dan is a very smart guy. There's a reason why he picked Kenneth Maines. And if the guy that he picked can do such a horrible job, it was a big downer. It wasn't a setback, though. It wasn't like we had to regroup or anything like that. You know, the truth is, is on our side. I mean, I can show this case to 
family, friends. I can show this case to people who are teenagers, people who are in grade school, people who are in their 60s, in their 70s, and they get it. You're telling me a guy like Kenneth Maines, a guy like, like that who, you know, has lived this, has worked this these cases, who is doing a show and, and all that on cold cases and solving cold cases. This is the biggest cold case you'll ever solve. Everything was given to him on a silver platter. All he had to do, all he had to do was just say, there's something wrong here. That's it. He couldn't even do that. Well, but if you if if you think back to what that um, detective said to Dan, where he said he'd be willing to talk, and then he talked to um, Gummert, and then he said, "Well, I really don't have anything, you know, much input on it, or you know, whatever." That to me says there's something wrong. Just that. Because if he was on that scene first, that is important to know what he said. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made a report. If what he had to say about what he saw when he first got there was not important, they would not have had him, they, they wouldn't have let him stay. They would have said, all right, buddy, go take off. They wouldn't have even had him really write a report. If it really wasn't important, why wouldn't it, why would it even be in there? But then there's other stuff that you, you find that is so vitally important to this that they just overlook. Like the hand, the gun, the hands, the arm, the cracked rib, the, 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 all, all the, the things that do not make sense, they overlooked. But then, things that they should have looked into were not. That. Like the fact that there wasn't a call placed on December 16th for the pot or a text message sent from David's phone. Right, or the follow-up. There Absolutely. were financial issues. The unknown DNA, that kind of stuff. Or the telephone still being or his account, his AT&T account, still being active as of last year. Who's paying for it? Is there identity theft? I don't, I haven't checked since to see if it's still active, but it's a little concerning that they were still active at that time. Well, if, if they had gone into, like, witness protection or something like that, they wouldn't their, have kept phones, their phones. Right, they wouldn't have kept their phones. They would have had to cut off all contact, completely change who they are and what they were about, every, everything down to their, their uh, childhood, their whole life story, their name, where they're from, everything. They have to completely become a new person. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point of witness protection is so that you can be given a new identity. So if they were in something like that, those phones wouldn't have been paid. Correct. You, you wouldn't find any of the future breadcrumbs after they've died. 
if they did it on their own, in this day and age, that is insanely hard to actually pull off because there are cameras everywhere. Every single, well, not every single person, but pretty much every single person on this planet has a phone with a camera and a recording device of some sort, whether it's an app or just the phone itself, they would be found. All right. I want to thank you all for listening here. This is episode three. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Dan Hinnon, myself, Greg Fernandez Jr., Sophia, Stephanie, and our good friend Ann. So these three pages are from the first responders and what they saw when they first entered that house. This is what happens. This is the gray stage. Right now we're going to play the audio from when the first responders enter the house and clear this house. The two officers to enter the house and clear the house are Sergeant Greg Dahlstrom and Sergeant Adam Keeler. From this audio, I'm not sure which officer's voice you will hear. This is the raw audio from one of our members, Ken Pasquale. 45 S41, I'm in the area of the switch vehicle, territorial drive. 10 4. 10 4, Sam 14 for suspicion, 1055 Ramsdale Drive. Cop reporting suspicious behavior next door, way over to the home. To the right of the RP, sees dead bodies inside the house, dog inside, sees a gun in the house on the floor. 933, copy. Sam 14, copy. 2933, additional. According to the RP, residents have been out of town since before Christmas. Now there are Christmas presents out front, a dog inside, and what looks like possibly bodies inside, a gun laying on the floor inside. Happy. Want me to start medics? You can start them. I'll be in route in about one minute. Receive. Wait, Antoine, you can put me on that call. Just hand this one out. I'll come in later. Right. Sam 14 to 7 medic stage. Of the residence where the bodies are is 1051. 1051. Sam 14, I'm out. 10-4. 13-05. 49-7-14. 49-7-14. 49-7-14. 49-7-14. 49-7-14. 49-7-14. 49-7-14. 49-7-14. 49-7-14. 49-7-14. 49-7-14. 49-7-14. 49-7
kids, just let Apple Valley know if they get busy with pending calls, we can help out. Sorry, Anne, 34, 7, 6. 10 4. 35, 17, I copy. I'll take care of it. 10 4, thank you. 49, 10 14. We're going to make entry as soon as GSO can get here and clear this dog. 10 4. 30 for 11 for 3 vehicle, 10 50, display and pilot. 11, I copy. And they're pulling into the gas station. 10 4. 1350. 34 to C1 on the main. Go for C1, go for C1. Winter 20. Better on the corner. Alright, what do you get here? Bring your pull back. Copy. Copy. 4934. 4934. Be making entry into the house. I'll be making entry. Okay. 4914. Point at 10, 14. First floor search complete. Three obviously good. We're in the basement. 10, 4. First floor search now in the basement. 49, 34. 49, 34. We're code 4. Let's just keep the channel for a little bit. 10, 4, code 4. Keeping the channel. 49, 34. Go ahead. Can Alina clear or do you want them in? Sorry, Alina can clear. Yeah, for a line of clearing. 49, Sam, 14. 49, Sam, 14. Hey, Joe, all investigators, and we'll to our PD. I'll be in contact with 901 here shortly. Sam, for page out, all investigators. 34. We don't need to block off the street. Just put your squad there. 45, one. I'll be in the area. I call here in PDM. Sam, no, I'm also in the area. 10-4. 49, 10, 14. 49, 10, 14. Let me get BCA call. Have them call the number on my login screen, please. And what you have are people that are accusing David Crowley of this crime without the evidence. Looking through all the evidence here, as we are going to do by going through this book, is to show that there is no evidence that proves David Crowley guilty. None of this does. It's all based on feelings. It's all based on what the investigators quote-unquote believe. And it doesn't mean that all of the investigators have come to the same conclusion that their superiors have. But it's very clear at some point the investigators and everybody else had to fall in line with what the official theory would be. And let's not forget how quickly that the Apple Valley Police decided David Crowley was guilty and the public was not in any danger. We're talking within 24 hours, possibly within hours. We can clearly see by the 94 pages of police reports, by the over 500 pages of BCA documents, and by the medical examiner's report, there's nothing in here that proves David Crowley guilty. They can suspect him. He might be their suspect, but being a suspect and being the perpetrator of the crime are two completely different things. Give this to people. 
hand this book out. Share the information in this book. You can download all of the information for yourself right now by going to thegraystage.wordpress.com. Scroll down to the bottom of the homepage and you can download all of these documents right now. A lot of these documents can also be found in the Justice for David Crowley and Family Facebook group and Dan Hinnon's website, theuglytruth.info. Once again, I want to thank you all. If you have not listened to the first two episodes, I think it is well worth the effort, well worth the time. We try to keep these to a maximum of one hour, about 60 minutes, and these will be released on the first of every month. This is not about me. This is not about you. This is about getting justice for this family. That is the purpose here, and it's very clear. We have a slam dunk case, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. It really doesn't. But it does require you to remove your personal feelings and to remove what you think happened here. Look at the documents. Look at the images. You can clearly see David Crowley is innocent until proven guilty, which can never be done for multiple reasons. Obviously, one reason being that David Crowley is dead. But let's say that he wasn't dead. Even then, based on all of this information that we have here, these authorities cannot even prove that David Crowley wrote anything in that house. They can barely prove David Crowley ever put his hand on that gun. And we know for sure that they cannot put the pin in David Crowley's hand. They cannot tie the footprints in the living room to David Crowley. They cannot tie any of the prints on the laptop in the kitchen to David Crowley, and they cannot tie the blood writing on the living room wall to David Crowley. More so, they can't even find the bullet that killed David Crowley. His blood is not on any of these bullets. That's about it, my friends. I wanna thank you all. All right, I want to thank you all again for listening to the Grace Stage podcast. This has been episode number three. We truly appreciate all of your help. Please, please consider joining the group, Justice for David Crowley and Family Facebook group created by Dan Hennon. Think about joining some of our live calls on our YouTube channel, The Grace Stage. And of course, we want to thank you again for listening to this podcast for listening to every episode of this podcast and for helping to spread the word to let people know justice is coming. Justice is coming. It will be coming. Don't worry about that. Until next time, episode four will be next month. And of course, episode four will be the suspicious deaths. That will cover pages 19 all the way through, it looks like pages... That will cover pages 19 to 24. And in this, we are going to finally get the detectives who show up, the BCA who shows up, and of course, and of course, the medical examiners. And what they report when they walk into the house. When they go through the house thoroughly and find everything. Oh, but two important things they don't find. Item 53 and item 57. 
Item 53 is a bullet hole that rolls out of the living room carpet a few days after the investigators leave the house. And of course, item 57 is a bullet that is found one month later. And, and that bullet is only found because investigators are told that there is a bullet hole in the living room ceiling. So again, investigators, BCA, medical examiner, cleaning crew, everybody except for some of the friends of David Crowley, everybody missed the bullet hole in the living room ceiling. How's that possible? Well, we're going to talk about that on our next show, Suspicious Deaths. We'll see you then. This is the Gray Stage Podcast. Murder at 1051 Ramsdale Drive. What happened to David Crowley, his wife, and his daughter? If this was truly a double murder-suicide, why did investigators fail to prove David Crowley guilty? Where is the evidence David Crowley killed his wife and daughter? Where is the evidence David Crowley killed himself? Within 24 hours of finding the bodies of David Kamel and Rania Crowley, the Apple Valley Police Department were treating the incident as a double murder-suicide. Authorities cannot prove David wrote Allahu Akbar in his wife's blood on the living room wall. Authorities cannot prove David wrote I have loved you all with all of my heart on a laptop in the kitchen. Authorities cannot prove David wrote Open the Rise most recent version Submit to Allah Now on a notepad in his office bedroom. Authorities cannot prove the dog trapped inside the house ate David's right hand, both of Kamel's hands, and their daughter's right arm, since dog feces tests were never done. Authorities did not know about a bullet that rolled out of a living room carpet until they were notified by the cleaning company two days after the bodies were found. That bullet would later be tied to Rania Crowley. Authorities did not see the bullet hole in the living room ceiling or the bullet in the attic above until they questioned David's friend a month after the bodies were found. Authorities did not find a motive to support their accusations against David Crowley. Authorities did not find David's blood on any of the bullets at the crime scene. Authorities do not know when David Kamel and Rania Crowley died. What we know for sure is that David Crowley has not been proven guilty. A simple truth. It really is this simple. Either you believe David Crowley is innocent, or you believe he is guilty. If you believe David Crowley is guilty, you are wrong. If you believe David Crowley is innocent, you are right. It really is that simple. A United States Army veteran is dead. His wife and his five-year-old daughter are dead. A thorough investigation would only conclude with authorities admitting they lacked evidence to support their accusations. If authorities were to admit the case remains unsolved, 
they would also have to admit that the public may still be in danger. I am not able to solve this case. My interest is in forcing authorities to admit David Crowley is innocent. The reason they refuse to talk about this case is not because they are confident of David's guilt. They lack confidence in their allegations. Their department wishes to move on, but they are only lying to themselves. They must know the simple truth, and they need to publicly admit this. Their credibility depends on it now. The unspoken truth is that David is innocent until proven guilty. Why are authorities running from the simple truth? How long do they think they can run for? You cannot run from God. You cannot run from your nightmares. And you cannot run from the facts. Why would anyone want to? What could possibly motivate someone to try? If you cannot prove David Crowley guilty, then he remains innocent. It's as simple as that. So the resistance we face is disgusting. If David was guilty, the evidence would be right in our faces. If David was guilty, resistance to our questions would not exist. If David was guilty, facts would be evident. There are no facts to prove David guilty. There are only facts which prove David innocent. Hence, the resistance to getting justice for David Crowley and family. Who cares? Do the people who closed this case and decided to not speak about it ever again really care? Do the friends who accused David Crowley of being guilty days after his body was found really care? Perhaps they only care about spreading the accusations of David's guilt instead of researching the facts of this case. They don't seem to care about the facts which prove David innocent. Truth is a simple thing. Justice does not die. Facts prove David is innocent.